Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahirrabbilalamin. Wal'aqibatun lilmuttaqin. Wassalatu wassalamu ala sayyidil mursalin. Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Wa man tabi'ahum bi ihsanin ila yumiddin. Amma ba'd. An Jabir ibn Abdillah radiyallahu an. Annahu sami'a Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Aamal fatih. Wa huwa bi Makkah. وهو يقول إن الله ورسوله حرم بيع الخمر والميتة والخنزير والأصنام فقيل يا رسول الله أرأيت شحوم الميتة فإنه فإنه يتلى بها فإنه يتلى بها السفن ويدهن بها الجلود ويستصبح بها الناس قال لا هو حرام ثم قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم عند ذلك قاتل الله اليهود إن الله حرم عليهم الشحوم فأجملوه ثم باعوه فأكلوش ثمنه خرجه البخاري والمسلم وفي الصحيحين عن ابن عباس رضي الله عنهما قال بلغ عمر أن رجلا باع خمرا فقال قاتله الله ألم يعلم أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال قاتل الله اليهود حرمت عليهم الشحوم فجملوها فباعوها وفي رواية وأكلوا أثمانها So respected brothers and sisters inshallah we're continuing from the hadith that Ibn Rajam al-Hanbali added to the Arba'in of Imam Nawawi in his book Jami'u al-Ulumi wal-Hikam So we're on hadith number 45 now And again the premise for all the hadith of the Arba'in of Nawawi And the premise on which Ibn Rajab added to it Was that these are hadith that are very central to Islam These are hadith that you can argue that Many points of Islam revolve around it And they are from amongst those hadith that are the Jawami'u al-Kalim uh, of the examples of the Jawami al Kalim, that the, the, one of the miracles that the Prophet was given is he was given this comprehensiveness of speech. That a few words of his can encompass many, many uh, chapters of discussion. <coughs> so, this hadith is another hadith, and it's very actually somewhat related to what we were speaking about last week. Last week, we spoke about the hadith pertaining to the prohibition of intoxicants. Here we enter into another discussion And actually in the commentary of this hadith A lot of different discussions are brought up A lot of technicalities of fiqh are brought up Many of these discussions we'll leave today for the sake of You know, uh, we really don't have the time uh, And then for the other point that Going into those other discussions will You know, require a lot more uh, detailed analysis Which is kind of the beyond the scope of this program on Saturdays but there are a couple of very important points that the hadith introduces that we want to focus our attention on. And these are principles that you can share with anybody. Rather, we should share with everybody. Uh, and in fact, I can think of numerous examples in my own life where it was a misunderstanding of people not knowing the premise of this hadith or the hadith like it that led to them to a lot of inappropriate actions, a lot of inappropriate things. The hadith reads, uh, it's narrated by Jabir bin Abdullah radiallahu an. That he heard the Messenger of Allah وسلم, in the year of the conquest of Makkah, when the Prophet himself was in Makkah. So, this is an, uh, one point to note here is when we say that this happened the year of the conquest, what does that mean? 
one of the discussions that had probably come up much earlier on with some of the ahadith and some of the previous lessons that we did leading up to this class, uh, especially when the Sheikh Tamim was covering Lamahat Min Tariqh Sunnah, that the, the book of Sheikh Abdul Fattah Abu Ghudda glimpses from the, uh, um, the history of the codification of the Sunnah. In that, one of the discussions that was held is, is very important in order to be able to understand certain hadith to know the chronology. And oftentimes, knowing the chronology on and when certain rulings came down can actually illum, you know, illuminate a lot of the confusion that people have regarding certain matters. So, very frequently in many of the hadith, when it mentions some of these things that might seem like side issues, right? This happened in Mecca. This happened on the day of Arafah. This happened. A lot of these things sometimes they're mentioned in a hadith, right? Part of it, it could be, is that there is some side benefit in, you know, like in the side information in knowing those things. But a major point of why it's being mentioned as well is it gives context of when this ruling was given. This wasn't a ruling that was given in the early days of Makkah. Because there's many things, for example, we know that they were prohibited in the early days of Makkah or in the early days of Medina. Certain prohibitions had come down. And then later on, some of those prohibitions were then uh, um, abrogated. Some of those prohibitions were lifted or there was some leeway that was given. And the purpose was that initially certain deeds that people were habituated to, certain wrong habits that had kind of penetrated society in those days, and initially the, the prohibition might have been very severe, very staunch. But then later on, some of the prohibitions were lifted. Why? Because the initial prohibition was very staunch to break people from that habit. And once the bad habit was broken, once the bad understanding was broken, once the, the, the underlying issue that is plaguing society is lifted, then the element of it that is permissible was then allowed. A good example of this is the visiting of graves. Right? The Prophet ﷺ in the beginning, at one point, he forbade the Sahaba from visiting graves. Why? It's because frequently in that culture, when people would go to graves, there was a lot of inappropriate things that would come along with it. So there's a famous hadith of the Prophet where he mentions, Kuntu nahidukum an ziyarat al-qubur, that he, uh, he mentioned, that I used to prohibit you from visiting the, the graves, but now go and visit them. So initially he forbade it, once the, the aqidah of the people was rectified, once the wrong practices of the people were rectified, once some inappropriate things were rectified, now the benefit of going to the graveyards, taking a reminder of our own death, our own mortality, making dua for the deceased, all these beneficial things that can come from coming, going to the graveyard, that can now be accepted. So we see this situation exist in Islamic history. That in the early days, certain things were prohibited, later on they became permissible. We also see the opposite. In the early days, certain things were permitted, later on they became prohibited. So the chronology plays a big role. So in mentioning that this is the year of the conquest of Makkah in Makkah, this is demonstrating that this is something that happened in the latter days of Islam. So this is one of those rulings that we know that usually the rulings that came in the latter days, those were the rulings that remained firm. Those were rulings that remained the lasting rulings from there on out. So this is something that's worth noting. Right? Because uh, um, that argument sometimes can be brought from people that, oh, maybe this was just to curb people's certain you know, bad connection that people had with things. That is not the case here. So he mentions that he heard the Messenger of Allah وسلم, in the year of the, the conquest of Makkah in Makkah. And he, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, Indeed, Allah and His Messenger have prohibited the selling of, of wine 
the selling of carrion, the selling of, of swine, and the selling of idols. He mentioned that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah and His Messenger, they forbade, they've made prohibited the transactions dealing with wine, the transactions dealing with meta is carrion. Carrion is basically uh, uh, any animal that has been slaughtered or that has not been slaughtered in a halal way, it died of natural causes or was killed in a haram way, that's considered carry-on, right? It's considered to be a filthy thing. Uh, and the selling of swine and the selling of idols, any transaction involving these things. So someone then asked, O Messenger of Allah, what do you say about the, the tallow that comes from carry-on, right? We understand that you can't eat carry-on, meat that has not been slaughtered in a halal way, Meat that has not been properly slaughtered in the Islamic method is considered to be impure. It's considered to be haram. But what about the tallow? We're not talking about pork tallow, by the way, right? We're talking about halal animals. That's implied, that's understood. What about the tallow of the animal, right? Or even if it was pork tallow, it, it falls into the same category. Because you can take that tallow and you can utilize the tallow to. Uh, uh, to anoint ships, right? In the olden days, one of the ways they would make vessels waterproof is they would actually apply wax to it, right? And wax would often be made from beef tallow, right? The tallow candles were actually something very common in, in, in the olden days. So they would use this, this, this uh, fat, this grease that comes from the animals, the excess grease, and they would use that to coat the ships. It would be a way to protect the vessels. Or it's used to moisturize skins, or it's used to, uh, to, to give lighting. People would burn beef tallow, or they would burn any type of tallow for that matter, for the sake of making candles. So they asked, O Messenger of Allah, what do you say about tallow then? Because we understand the meat is haram, but you know, this is one way we can take benefit from that dead animal. You have that dead animal, one way you can make benefit of it is take advantage of its fat. That fat has a lot of good uses. <coughs> Excuse me. So the Messenger of Allah said, No, that is haram. No, that is prohibited. Thereafter, some after some time, the Messenger of Allah said, in response to that same question, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed the Jewish people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, may they be destroyed. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited for them the consumption, the, the utilization of tallow, the utilization of fat. For the Muslims, if, if fat comes or tallow comes from a halal animal, there's no issue with it. Right, you, we can use beef tallow, we can use the, the grease that comes from halal animals. For the Yahud, that was actually considered something haram for them. So he says, may Allah destroy them, or Allah did destroy them, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forbade for them the utilization of that tallow. So what they did is they took the tallow, they rendered the fat, right? So when you take fat, you can take tallow, tallow is like a, a hard part of the fat, right? When you take that and you render it it, 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 it purifies it, it comes out in a different form. They would take the rendered fat, they would sell it, and then they would eat from the wealth that was earned from that rendered fat. And the Prophet ﷺ is cursing the Yahud for that reason. And he's saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cursed them for that reason. That what happened is ultimately they began playing games with the deen of Allah. And this is the key thing here. In the other hadith that was also quoted, he mentions in the hadith of Bukhari and Muslim, that Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah, a different sahaba, but a similar hadith. He mentions that news reached Umar radiallahu an, and it's likely that this means that it reached Umar radiallahu an when Umar radiallahu an was the khalifa. News reached Umar radiallahu an that a man was selling wine. So he replied, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroy him. Doesn't he know that the Messenger of Allah said 
that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cursed the, the, the Yahud. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cursed the Jews because, he because tallow was made prohibited for them. So what they used to do is render that tallow and then sell the fat that came from it. And they would then you know, utilize, they would, earn, they, would, they would consume from the money that was earned from selling that fat. Brothers and sisters, now this is being brought as one of the central ahadith with regards to our deen. There's a lot more thought that this hadith requires. And why is that? Because this hadith is actually highlighting certain principles. The first principle is the most obvious one, right? If we look at this hadith on face value, that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forbade something, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forbade the benefit, the utilization of something for benefit, then part of the prohibition is also in selling that thing and trying to make money from it. In another hadith of Sahih Muslim, in the hadith of Abu Sa'id radiallahu an, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, إِنَّ اللَّهَ حَرَّمَ الْخَمَرُ فَمَنْ أَدْرَكَتْهُ هَذِهِ الْآيَةِ وَعِنْدَهُ مِنْهَا شَيْءٍ فَلَا يَشْرَبْ وَلَا يَبِعْ The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and Abu Sa'id radiallahu an mentions that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forbade wine. So whoever has heard this verse and he possesses anything of it, Meaning, you, maybe you already had some wine in your house because you didn't know it was haram. And when you, this, this verse reached you, this verse reached you in a state where you have it still in your cupboards. So anyone that this verse reached them, meaning they came to find out about this verse, and they still possess anything of it, then let them not drink from, from it, nor let him sell it. So the narrator mentions, from there on forth, the people received this verse in such a way that the streets of, Mani, of Medina began to flow with the flowing of wine. Why? Because, bear in mind, up until the prohibition of this alcohol, it was a big part of their culture. The consumption of wine was a huge part of their culture. So everybody had it in their cupboards. Everybody had it in their cupboards. They had some form of wine that was there. It wasn't haram. The moment it became haram, now bear in mind, imagine you, you go to the shop and you buy all your normal groceries, right? And all of a sudden you find out, oh, a certain type of bread, we found out it's haram. It's very likely you're going to have that bread inside your cupboards. So it wasn't that they were you know, planning ahead, like, oh, why did they have all this wine? They had it because it wasn't haram yet. It was permissible for them. When it became haram, all of a sudden they all have this haram goods inside their cupboards. So what happened? The streets of Medina ran with, you know, began flowing with this pouring of wine. Why? Because you can't drink it, you can't sell it, so just destroy it. And this was the response that the Sahaba عنهم, had when it came to that prohibition coming to them. When we talk about this, this specific ruling of being able to sell something which is haram for you to utilize. We understand if something is haram to utilize, it's also haram to sell. <clears throat> and the unfortunate thing is we see <clears throat> how many Muslims are caught up in this disease, caught up in this predicament of owning liquor shops. I had the, the misfortune of one time walking into a convenience store in a part of you know, the community where community, most convenience stores happen to like double as liquor stores. And there was no other option, right? Unfortunately, I would have rather not go into that type of shop. I needed to get something. I walked in. It was a, it was a, a, a you know, a corner shop. And it was the only type of corner shop that wasn't obviously a liquor store. But being in the part of town that it's in, you know, obviously it's also going to be a liquor shop on, on the side. <clears throat> so I walk in. I get what I need to get. get to the counter. And the unfortunate thing is the entire back wall is just a wall of liquor. Right? 
And I just look and right above the liquor, there's a sticker that, there that says, MashaAllah, la quwwata illa billah. Astaghfirullah. This is like, I mean, you know, there's much that can be said about it. I'll leave that, I'll leave that discussion out. You, unfortunately, you find, you know, it's common. You'll find so many liquor shops that are owned by Muslims. I don't know if anyone remembers this. It's almost like seven, eight years back. But in Oakland, there was actually a movement in the community that there were people, non-Muslims, they were going into Muslim liquor shops, specifically Muslim-owned liquor shops. And they were breaking the bottles inside the store saying that you guys refuse to drink this stuff and you're willing to destroy our communities over it. It was on the news. It was like seven, eight years ago. I don't know if anyone remembers this. But literally, imagine that, 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 that situation, that scenario, right? The hypocrisy, that we know the harms and the destructiveness of this, but we'll still sell it to people, right? Brothers and sisters, that's not halal. This is just one hadith. There's many hadith on the topic of the selling of wine and alcohol and, and, and intoxicants. There's no, there's no leeway in the discussion of selling of, of, of wine in particular, right? But the point being is we were, we're trying to get to a deeper principle, a higher principle, a principle that we can apply in various elements of society. For a Muslim to engage in trade in anything that they consider haram in their own deen is totally unacceptable, totally inappropriate. So when something is haram, utilizing it in, in any way should be out of the question. We're not talking about subtleties and technicalities and, 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 and you know, special situations. Forget all about that. We're talking about everyday life. The majority of the situations that we face. I remember one time, there was a huge argument that broke up. I was with some brothers. I was younger back then, right? So the, 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 the gathering was also younger. But we had these young brothers that were like probably in the, between like high school and college age. And... You know, someone had mentioned something about a certain bar of soap that, you know, its ingredients are not, are not halal. And there was a big fight that broke out of it. What? How can you say soap is haram? You aren't eating soap. And this huge argument breaks out. And one person is trying to explain that. Like, look, no. Soap is made, any type of soap, it's made with grease. There's going to be some sort of grease inside of the soap. Right? Glycerin is the most common form of grease that's used to make soap. The main ingredient in soap is the grease, actually, the fat. A lot of soap is oftentimes made from fat that comes from pork. It's, I think it's died down a bit now, but there was a time when it was very common. And especially a lot of specialty soaps with really good ingredients, a lot of times the really good ingredients, <clears throat> that's what it goes back to. A lot of times there's something, that they, that ingredient that's there, it comes from pork. The prohibition of pork is not only the prohibition of consuming pork, right? That doesn't, just because you can't consume pork doesn't mean you take that pork fat and rub it on your body now, right? That, seems, that should be self-evident, but for a lot of times we don't make it self-evident. Another thing is, for example, natural bristles, right? Natural, natural bristle brushes. Natural bristles usually are boar hair bristles. It's a big thing, boar hair brushes, Right? People that, that use brushes, boar hair is very common, very popular for, for utilization. The utilization of those haram things is not permissible. Pork, swine, pig is considered najisul ain. Everything about it is considered impure. Everything about it is considered impure. But we're not even talking about the discussion right now. We're not getting into that discussion. We're talking about buying and selling things. We're talking about this hadith is predicated on buying and selling. Just like, for instance, a Muslim to consume those things is haram, for a Muslim to sell it to somebody else is haram. Even if that person is not Muslim. A Muslim should not be selling things to another person, making money off the sale of something that you consider haram. Look, brothers and sisters, there's, yes, in certain things there may be some discussion that can be bought. 
Right? If, if a person is a business person and a situation comes up, speak to the muftis about your specific situation. I'm talking about generalities. For a Muslim, we, we're, let's just think about this from, for briefly for a second from an ethical perspective. From an ethical perspective, if a person comes to you and asks you, if a non-Muslim comes to you and asks you, why don't you drink? Why don't you drink alcohol? Why don't you drink wine? And you try to explain to them. Almost every Muslim will go the route if they themselves don't, if, you know, we have the good opinion that inshallah that's a Muslim, that they themselves, they don't drink, they don't get high, they don't get intoxicated. If they were to try to explain to a person who is not Muslim, or maybe they were trying to convince their Muslim friend of staying away from that thing, what are they going to start discussing? All the harms inside of that thing. This is the harms of alcohol, this is the harms of intoxicants, this is the harms of this, this is the harms of that. So we'll tell that person, we'll educate that person, we'll use that information to try to convince that person not to consume it. So then what happens when it comes time to do business? If, we've con if we can convince ourselves and we can convince other people that something is harmful, why would you want to do business with something that is harmful? Why would you intentionally sell someone something knowing that you're harming them in the process? I'm, brothers and sisters, I'm not going to go into the, the, the technicalities of which situation is it halal, which situation is it haram. We understand the generality of this hadith is speaking about this general principle. That anything that is haram, the selling of it is also haram. Right? It comes in the hadith of, uh, uh, of Abu Dawood. Abu Dawood min hadith ibn Abbas an nabi sallallahu alayhi wa this is this previous hadith that I mentioned There's an addition that's added to it That in the hadith The hadith of Ibn Abbas that we mentioned already It explains The hadith that we mentioned previously of Ibn Abbas That Allah destroyed the Yahud Or may Allah destroy the Yahud That the tallow was made prohibited for them So they used to render it and sell it one of the additions that is found in some of the narrations is it also explains the, 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 the root cause here that anytime Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibits the consumption of a thing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also prohibits the money that is earned from the sale of that thing. That's a general principle that we can now apply. If it's haram to consume, it's haram to sell and make money off of it. Right? Or let's rephrase it, it's haram to sell even if you're selling it for a loss. Right? It's haram to sell. Sometimes you get people that catch you on those small things, right? It's haram for you to sell. Whether you make money or you lost money, right? Whatever the, the sale price is, don't mess with it. <laughs> so we understand this underlying principle. Now a person can go into all sorts of detailed situations. We're not talking about that. What is the root cause, the thing that we're discussing here? That the selling of something that is haram is also... The, the, the selling of something which we know that utilizing it, benefiting from it, consuming it is haram, to sell it is also haram. This should be self-evident, right? But now why do we fall into this situation that what if we're in this situation, what if in that situation, what if, what if, what if? Why do we find so many times Muslims fall into this? It's because ultimately we try to find the lucrativeness of it, the money comes into it. When it comes to ourselves, we're ready to stay away from it. But when it hits the pocketbook, that's when people start getting worried. Brothers and sisters, this is something that we should really have this ethical consideration in everything that we do. That when we don't want to, we don't want to promote something that we understand is, it is negative in the first place. There should be an ethics in everything that we do, and even in our buying and our selling.
Now, there may be certain things which is not explicitly haram. Right? This is, the, 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 this is another point now that comes up. There are certain things, it's not explicitly haram. You won't find a hadith that says the consumption of cigarettes is haram. Stay away from it. Cigarettes weren't something that were smoked in the time of the Prophet Maybe there were other things that people in some parts of the world smoked or didn't smoke. But cigarettes, that word is not used by the, the, by, by the Prophet to discuss what is halal and haram. Now a person may ask, you know, is it okay for a Muslim to sell cigarettes? Brothers and sisters, a lot of times we get really caught up in trying to find out, is this, you know, specifically haram? Is this makru? What is the technical thing here? Forget for a second the technicalities. Let's remind ourselves that there's higher principles in our deen. And we're trying to aim for those higher principles. Allah says in the Quran, Ya ayyuhaladzin amanu, kulu min al-tayyibati wa'amalu saliha. Right? Or another example, يَا أَيُّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا كُلُّهُمْ مِمَّا فِي الْأَرْضِ حَلَالًا طَيِّبًا وَلَا تَتَّبِعُوا خُطُوَاتِ الشَّيْطَانِ Right? Or you who believe, eat from that which is upon the earth halal and tayyib. What is tayyib? Tayyib is that which is pure. Allah mentions two things in the Qur'an. And this, 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 this combination of halal and tayyib, it doesn't come once in the Qur'an. It comes multiple times in the Qur'an. What is this meaning? Why is halal mentioned and why is tayyib mentioned? It means there's two things that we're being told to do. We're being told to eat what is halal. Most Muslims at least have some rudimentary concept of what is halal. Whether they eat it or they don't eat it, we at least understand the concept. That certain things are prohibited and certain things are permissible. But what is this concept of tayyib? We understand the concept of halal, we understand the concept of something being lawful. Whether we do it or we don't do it, most Muslims at least have an idea of that existing. But what is this other concept of tayyib? Why is the discussion of tayyib never brought up or discussed? Whereas in the command in the Quran, numerous times it's being mentioned as well. We're being told to eat that which is lawful, and we're being told to eat that which is pure. Right? And we're being told, eat what is halal, and eat what is tayyib, and then do good deeds. Why are we being told to do good deeds as well? There's a correlation here. That the things that we do, not only should it be technically halal, it should be something which is also pure and excellent. Our goal should be whatever we can do to try to have the best form of sustenance, try to have the best form of consumption, trying to have the best form of, 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 of livelihood. Why? Because everything that we do, everything that we consume, it is being fed by that thing that we earn. It comes in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, right? The Prophet ﷺ describes a person who is ash'atha aghbara, Right? A person whose hair is disheveled and he's covered in dust. Right? And his hands are raised and he's, and he's calling out, Ya Rabbi, Ya Rabbi. He's calling out and he's saying, Oh my Lord, Oh my Lord. The ulama explained the way the Prophet describes this person's situation is very likely this is talking about the people that are actually traveling for Hajj and they're probably on the day of Arafah standing there making dua to Allah. Because the, the, the quality of their hair being disheveled and them being covered in dust, usually that's the quality of the people that are in ihram. So a person might be there on the day of Arafah, doing hajj, hands raised, covered in dust, wearing their ihram. And they're calling out to Allah, calling out to Allah, crying to Allah. But how is their dua going to be accepted? The hadith continues. Because their clothing is haram, their food is haram, their sustenance is haram. All the provisions is haram. So how is the rudu'a going to be accepted? 
Ibn Kathir, he explains a hadith in relation to one of these ayat that, that speak about eating halal and tayyib. He mentions this narration of Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas radiallahu And he mentions that Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas radiallahu he once asked the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa O Messenger of Allah, I want my du'as to be accepted. I want my du'as to be accepted. What did the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa tell him to do? He gives him this advice of eat halal and tayyib. Because the, what we consume, and when we're talking about consume, we're not talking about only about food. What we utilize, what we earn and we utilize on ourselves and our bodies, let's realize that's what fuels us to do whatever we do. You know, in school they used to have this expression, you are what you eat. What, what does that mean? Like literally, I just ate like some fried chicken, so I'm, a, I'm, I'm fried chicken? No, no, that's not what it's talking about. Whatever we eat ultimately becomes the fuel that, that our bodies use to give us energy to do whatever we do. Our bodies ultimately are made up of the nutrients that are extracted from the food that we consume. So if everything that we consume is haram, because it's earned with haram money, or it's haram because it was processed in a, wrong, a wrongful way, or it's haram because it's using wrongful ingredients, that means everything that we do is being fueled by the disobedience of Allah. Allah told us, don't use this fuel. It's like, you know, like you go to the car, you have a car, right? And your, your uh, uh, you know, premium cars, luxury cars, they tell you, you know, premium, you know, unleaded only. Don't use the normal unleaded. Use unleaded plus or use the premium unleaded. Or for example, certain high-end manufacturers, you know, if you get an oil change, you need to make sure you get an oil change from a certified vendor. Otherwise, what happens? Your warranty is voided. I heard I think BMW is like that. Any work has to be done through a BMW dealer. I don't know if anybody has a Beamer that can explain if that's true or not. But supposedly I heard, if you want to keep your warranty up to, uh, up to, up to, up to date, one of the conditions of your warranty is, it has to be only serviced by a BMW certified uh, uh, repair shop. All your oil chains, all your maintenance, it has to be done in that way. Manufacturers will oftentimes have these conditions. If you want your warranty to remain valid, then you need to make sure you give it premium fuel. You need to make sure you give it premium oil. You need to make sure you service it in a premium way. And if you don't, then there's no warranty. You already destroyed your car yourself. If your car stops working, it's not because of our fault, it's because of your fault. Now imagine Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us this vehicle of our bodies. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, premium fuel only. And if you're not going to give it premium fuel, then realize that you're fueling it with, 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 with what it was not meant to be fueled with. If you're not going to fuel it, fuel it with premium fuel, you're get, putting in the wrong stuff. So what happens? It's not going to work no more. You're going to make dua to Allah. But you fueled it with the wrong stuff. You know what? Warranty void. There's no more guarantee. Our du'as are guaranteed to be accepted, brothers and sisters. There's no du'a of a believer that doesn't get accepted. Unless the, the believer does something to void his guarantee from Allah. If we don't void our guarantee, Allah gave us a guarantee. Allah gave us this guarantee. Right? If we don't void that guarantee, if we don't void that guarantee, it's guaranteed that Allah will accept our du'as. People want to have their du'as accepted, right? We go to like every random person, make du'a for me, make du'a for me. No, Allah, you make du'a to Allah, Allah will accept it. Just don't do anything to break that guarantee from Allah. What is one of those guarantees? Don't eat haram. Don't eat foul things. Now if we understand this core concept, we understand this base concept, that you can, you can have, all, you know like you know, kids have this concept of like, the genie in the lamp. 
It's like a fantasy concept, right? What's the whole intrigue with the genie and the lamp? <clears throat> is when you get the genie, you get three wishes. Whatever you want, three things. No questions asked. It's like a pretty amazing story, right? But if we only understood the power of dua, that you can have whatever you want, period. Not three. Five times a day. Actually, more than that. Right? You're not restricted to five times a day. Our du'as, brothers and sisters, we, 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 we underestimate how easy Allah has made it for us, our du'as to get accepted. Now we have that at our disposal. We have that at our disposal. All our du'as can be accepted. Just don't do those things that Allah tells us, yeah, you know what, this is something that voids your warranty. So then when we void the warranty and our du'as doesn't get fulfilled, then whose fault was it in the first place? The Prophet is highlighting that in this hadith. That person's clothing is haram. His food is haram. His sustenance is haram. His provisions is haram. How is this dua going to be accepted? It doesn't matter he went for hajj. It doesn't matter he's in suffer. It doesn't matter all these things. Everything else about him is haram. I remember our brother was telling me this story. Uh, he told me that, you know, he was trying to convince an, a, a, an acquaintance of his who owned a liquor shop. He was sharing the story with me. He said, I was trying to tell my friend who owns this liquor shop that, you know what, like, brother, why don't you try to get out of this? He says, don't worry about it. He says, like, I go for Hajj every single year. I go for Hajj every single year. Not only do I go for Hajj, I pay for the Imam's Hajj also. Man, liquor shop is good money. Liquor shop is very good money. It's haram money though. There's a lot of lucrative things, brothers and sisters, that can come to us. The opportunities for haram business are many. Right? This dunya, it's... It's lush, it's green, it's tantalizing. That's where the true test comes though. That's where the true test comes. E Haram money is easy money. That's why, so, well, that's why so many people fall into that test. The Prophet ﷺ wasn't afraid of, he didn't fear that his ummah would just be wiped out by like enemies. The Prophet was afraid that the dunya would wipe out this ummah. The thing that Prophet ﷺ feared for this ummah was this dunya opening up. What does that mean? There will be opportunities. Opportunities that you can't say no to. It was, just, it, was, it was an opportunity too good to pass up. Brothers and sisters, pass up that opportunity. Right? There's much better opportunities. That's actually a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this principle, what we're trying to get at here is understanding this key thing. That the money that we earn, we want that money to come from pure, pure, pure. We don't want it to be tainted. Because when it gets tainted, it destroys. What is the dua that the Prophet is making? What is the Prophet mentioning? When the Yahud started playing these games. Because brothers and sisters, this is the key thing that we're getting at. A lot of times we see an opportunity, it's very lucrative. Man, I need to find the mufti that's going to give, tell me it's okay. So we go fatwa shopping. Let me ask this mufti, let me ask that mufti, let me ask this molwi, let me ask that molwi, let me ask this imam, let me ask that imam. We start going fatwa shopping. If nobody else will say it, it's okay, I'll find it on Imam Google. Imam Google will help me find the right fatwa. We ha it happens to us. The Prophet is mentioning, and this can be either khabar or it can be an actual dua. It can be that Allah, the Messenger of Allah is informing us that Allah did destroy the Yahud for this purpose. Allah did curse the Yahud for this purpose. Or it could be a dua that may Allah curse the Yahud. One way or the other. It's either the dua of the Prophet against them, or it's the Prophet informing us of what has already happened with them. The key thing is, don't follow in their footsteps. Right? That you know what? Something has been made haram. Something is, something has, something is murky in its halalness. 
Right? I know it's kind of a made-up word. But if something is murky in how halal it really is, don't fall into that trap of trying to play games with your deen now. Because what you earn, that is going to provide everything in your life. It's not simply, oh, it's just business. It's not just business. The money from that business is going to feed you. It's going to feed your children. It's going to put a roof over your head. It's going to put clothes on your body. It's going to put food on the table. Everything about your life will be tainted with that haram good. And shaitan will tell you, don't worry. You'll go for hajj, Allah will forgive you. What if you go for hajj and that's the only reason Allah won't accept your hajj? A lot of situations come out and people will, will convince ourselves. I've had conversations with brothers that like, a brother came to me one time and was telling me how he wanted to enter into this, this uh, really bad interest-bearing you know, interest, uh, transaction. Like it, it, was, it was pretty significant. And he was sharing the good news with me. Quote-unquote good news. Right? Quote-unquote good news. I'm not saying it's actually good news. And when he told me, I'm like, man, you made like such a big plan. Why are you telling me? Like of all the people you're going to tell, don't tell me. Right? And I'm in this situation. I'm like, man, like, I have to say something. So I'm like, 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 like Habibi, like, you know, like Allah declares war against the people that, do, that fall into riba, right? Like you, you don't want to get into you don't want to get into war with Allah. Like that's like the of all the people to get into war with, you don't want to get into war with Allah. I I I don't know what else to tell the person. I know you're trying to tell me good news. I don't think it's good news. I think maybe like you should think about this twice. You don't want to get into war with Allah. The point being is, brothers and sisters, sometimes there will be situations that's very lucrative, very lucrative. In his mind, is like, you know what, this is going to free me up. I'm going to make good money. It's going to allow me to spend more time studying deen. It's going to help. I'm like, like you got it all twisted. Spend less time studying deen. Make your, your, make your sustenance, make your risk pure. Right? If you learn your fadl al-ayn, it doesn't take you to become like a full-time student of knowledge to become, learn your fadl al-ayn. It's definitely, it's more important for you to eat halal than it is for you to, to, uh, uh, to seek knowledge. We have to realize that, that whatever we do, our modes of sustenance, it affects everything in our life. So don't, this is not those situations where you want to play games with Allah. That, okay, you know what, technically speaking, this was haram, but you know what, it's okay if I do it like this. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's haram for me to, sell, to, to do this, but you know what, I, like for example, another, another one that like, really like, gets under my skin is smoke shop. Right, smoke shop, I'm not selling like anything haram, right? What is associated with smoke shop? I'm not, gonna, I'm not a mufti, I'm not going to give you a, a fatwa of halal or haram, right? Although I think it's kind of self-evident for anyone that wants to really think about it. What is smoke shop connected to? It's connected to anything f- vile and foul. Smoke shop, everything. Even if you're not smelling, selling cigars and cigarettes. Even if you're not smelling, selling tobacco. right? Even if you're not selling weed or meth or whatever in the back, right? You're like one of those so, supposedly, quote-unquote, honest smoke shop dealers. I don't even know if you can combine those words together, right? Where you're not doing anything illegal in the back of your smoke shop. Right? Even if you're, what are you doing? You're selling paraphernalia that's being used for drug abuse. Your entire business revolves around people, you know, hooking people up with how to get high. That's your business model. Is that really the type of wealth you want to take home and feed your kids with? Is that really the wealth you want to take home and now everything you do is going to be tainted with that money? As we as Muslims, brothers and sisters, we should try to not only look at technically speaking, is this halal and technically speaking, is this haram? We should fall into the concept of is this tayyib or is this not tayyib? A few weeks back, Sheikh Tamim covered the hadith, right? On 
you know, in the halal abayin wal haram abayin, ubaynahuma umur mushtabihat. That indeed halal is clear cut, and haram is clear cut, and between these two clear cut things, there's this gray area. What it is? What is mentioned in the hadith? So for whoever stays away from that gray area, whoever stays away from those doubtful matters, he's preserved his honor and he's preserved his deen. This, this living your life on the principles of what is tayyib It saves you from falling into those things which are haram If you keep getting stuck in those gray areas Eventually you're going to slip Eventually you, you want to walk that tightrope Eventually you're going to slip brothers and sisters And what is the ramifications? What are the repercussions? Ultimately we face the consequences of those, of those decisions Our kids face the consequences of those decisions Our, our lives will, will see the consequences of those decisions A couple of days ago We were going through the biography of Imam Bukhari Rahimahullah ta'ala And one of the salient features One of the noteworthy biographical details Of Imam Bukhari's life Is It's mentioned about his father He said I never fed my family anything Which was doubtful Not haram I never fed my family anything that was doubtful I made sure everything that I fed them Was not only halal It was free of any doubt yeah, you, that type of, that type of wealth is going to produce that type of child. The food we, we feed our children has a big effect on the type of children that come out. It's a very interesting thing. A brother was sharing with me, a convert brother. He said, it surprises me the number of people that I've met that one of the things that happened to them before coming to Islam was they become vegetarians. Or they gave up the eating of pork. One of the things that people did a lot is surprising. A lot of people before they come into Islam, one of the things that they just happen to do for various reasons. Some people do it for health reasons. Some people do it for ethical reasons. But one of the things that people do is they start becoming vegetarian. I'm not saying this to say you know we need to become vegetarians now. I'm saying this to say that if a person becomes vegetarian, what happened? You stopped eating haram food. You're only eating halal food now. And if a person is only eating halal food, only eating halal food, that's going to have an effect as well. Every single time they eat something, imagine this brothers and sisters, when a Muslim eats meat, that meat has the name of Allah mentioned upon it. The point being is, what we eat, what we consume, we should make sure that our, our means of livelihood remain pure and our means of livelihood stay completely crystal clear. Ibn Rajab adds this one important point and then inshallah I'll end with this. Ibn Rajab explains this point that look, it's also important for us to note that when we talk about certain things that are haram, those haram things are in two categories. Why is he mentioning this? He mentions this point to clarify that like look, both of them are haram. Don't let shaitan trick you into thinking that in one of them you can make some use out of it. He says some haram things that are haram, haram, and also not only is the benefit of it haram By not using it, it will get destroyed For example, some pork Someone comes to you and offers you some, gives you some bacon They don't know you're a Muslim What happens if all of a sudden that, that's in front of you And you don't, you, you, you don't utilize it It's going to get wasted, it's going to get destroyed A lot of Muslims lose sleep over this That oh, someone gave me some haram food I don't want the food to go to waste It was already wasted it was already wasted. 
right? From the moment it, was, it came in, it was already wasted. Why? Because it was not meant to be consumed. So this is one of the tricks that comes. If we have it in front of us, it's going to go to waste. We don't want to waste this thing. We're, we're people that don't waste. That's something that, yes, we should waste that. Alcohol, wine, pork, these things, yeah, if they're not going to be consumed, they might go to waste. It's okay, let, let them go to waste. It's better for them to go to waste than for a Muslim to consume it or for a Muslim to try to slick away to make use of it. Let it go to waste. The other category are those things that they're haram and there's still some benefit you might be able to find out of it. Right? This is an idol. But you know what? I can take this idol and I can refashion it and you know what? And, 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 and shave it down and make some use out of it. Right? Or I can take this and, and do these. You no, know, it's, it's, it's haram. Like, just ignore it. Get rid of it. I can sell this for scrap metal. Right? Get, get rid of it. Don't, don't make use of it. Yes, there's a, a lengthier discussion. If it's, if it's been disfigured, it's been transformed, it's been all the, that's a different discussion altogether. We're not talking about that. But for a person to say, how can I make some, how can I benefit from it? Don't try to benefit from it. Well, if it's haram, brothers and sisters, we don't want to have anything to do with it. Just, just cut it off. So this key point is a point that is actually involves a lot of big matters of our deen. That a person should be very, very wary to see where is our sustenance coming from. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the ability to benefit and, and guard ourselves in all these avenues of, uh, of haram wealth coming to us. And, and staying away from all those things that are impermissible and leaving lives where we are not only... Uh, consuming halal but we're consuming tayyib as well wa sallallahu ta'ala ala